good afternoon. If you'd like to open your Bibles up to the book of Amos. Amos. We're going to spend just a little bit of time this afternoon in this Old Testament prophet. It's interesting, the the song that Alan has picked for our, our invitation song. Hark the gentle voice. First line, hark the gentle voice of Jesus falleth tenderly upon your ear. I think we can take a lot of, of comfort in that. Uh, the, the, the comforting sound of the, the voice of our Lord, the voice of our Savior. Uh, we spoke a little bit this morning about uh, attributes of God that, that should bring comfort to us. Um, me and Holly were, were speaking afterwards about the, the prospect that there was nowhere I could go, nowhere down to the, to the deepest oceans, the highest mountain. I can't escape God. and uh, The comfort of that is for those that are seeking Him, you can find Him no matter where you are. But there's a, a flip side uh, to, to that view because the, the flip side is, as Jonah found out, for those that are forsaking God, there's nowhere you can run. Well, with the voice of God, we see a, a very similar, um, a similar reflection. As, as our song that we will sing here in just a few moments uh, reveals to us that, that the voice of God, the, the call of the Lord is tender, is merciful, is, is joy to hear, but not always. And Amos makes that very clear as he starts this, this book of prophecy. We're just going to look at the first two chapters of the book of Amos this afternoon. But, but as we'll see in the, the first couple of verses, Amos is going to be proclaiming a, the voice of God that's, that's booming and echoing through the land. And, and it's not a voice that comes with a tender message. It's not a voice that brings gentleness to its hearers. It's a voice of, of dread and a voice of terror. The series, uh, or the book of Amos, is a, a book uh, following what, what many have called the country prophet. He was... He was a, a man that was accustomed with outdoor life, a man that was accustomed with living off the land. He was a sheep breeder from Tekoa, and, and he survived uh, as part of his life tending sycamore fruits uh, and harvesting them. And it was believed that the, the sycamore fruit was one, uh, the, it was the, the food, the, the nourishment of the most poorest of people. So it is commonly thought that Amos was probably a poor country boy that was bringing this message to Israel. He comes from Judea, uh, and during the, his time in, in Israel bringing this message, eventually the priest there will say, why don't you just go back home? Go back to Judah because we don't, we don't want to hear you in Israel here with what you have to say. His book is divided into three sections. The first two chapters are these oracles of God concerning sin and judgment. The second is a series of sermons concerning the sin and judgment of Israel. And then finally, he wraps this up with a series of visions. Again, wrapped around this regarding the sin and judgment of Israel. His name means burden bearer. And uh, he was the one that came and revealed that God had been bearing the burden of, of Israel and of these nations for some time, but that was about to draw to an end. And we'll see, uh, as I said in these first two verses, his, his message is detailed by what we read in verse 2. In fact, let's read the first two verses together. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, 
in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shields mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Now, right off the bat, this, uh, we begin seeing imagery that is based around things that an outdoorsman might, might have noticed in his day. He's using this idea of, of the lion uh, roaring. He uses the pastures and the shepherds. The, the top of Carmel withering carries with it the idea of the crops that grew on top of Carmel. Uh, and in related to that, Carmel was a place, uh, un- unlike today, Mount Carmel does, does not grow much on top of its summit. But in, in their time, Mount Carmel was the place they could always go to to find vine land and to, to, to be able to plant a vineyard, to be able to plant product and, and to grow because it was always a place that was well taken care of uh, no matter what else was going on. If there's a drought in the land, if there's a famine in the land, they knew that Carmel would, would have some sort of sustenance on it and yet the Lord roars from Zion and even the tops of Carmel is withering away from the message that he has. The people of Israel, um, as he brings this message of condemnation and judgment against them, they were at the peak of prosperity in their lives, but they were rapidly filling up their measure of sin. And the mission Amos had was to threaten them rather than to console them. He rebukes them for their corruption. He rebukes them for the, the, the way in which they had uh, outgrown their prosperity with their sin, and he charges them with being partial, uh, partial as judges, violence towards the poor, and he foretells that God is going to bring punishment, captivity, and destruction in a foreign country. And so I just want to spend some time this afternoon looking at these, these uh, judgments that he pronounces in the first two chapters, what they mean, and really how, what they mean to us today. What can we take from them? So let's look at verses 3 through 5 real quick, and we won't, we won't go into great detail on them. We're just going to note the highlights from each, uh, each nation that he brings up, and he will bring up eight nations that he's going to bring judgment on. The first one is Damascus in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire from the house of Hazael, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bars of Damascus and the cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And the one who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden, the power of Syria, shall go captive to Kerr, says the Lord. So he begins with this phrase that we're going to get very comfortable with. Thus says the Lord, number one, Amos is making it very clear, this is not my words. Even though he started the chapter out in verse one, the words of Amos, He's letting them know, even though I'm the one speaking this, this is God's message. God is bringing this to you. And then he has another statement that he'll use over and over again. For three transgressions and for four. It's like saying, for, for sin upon sin upon sin upon sin, they, this is coming upon you. Not for just a little bit of sin. They had been increasingly, increasingly wicked. And, and it has grown to the point where God has had enough. And He is about to bring judgment upon them after time and time again calling them to repent. So the sin of Damascus was their cruelty towards the people, the inhabitants of Gilead, which would have been the tribes of Gad and the tribes of Reuben. As I mentioned, they were threshed with iron implementation. 
Uh, one of the things that, that, this, that the Syrians had done, Damascus was kind of the, 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 the capital of Syria. Ben-Hadad were, were a family of kings, like we would say the Bush family. There were many kings with that name Ben-Hadad. They, they, were, um, they were enemies of Israel for quite some time. And one thing that they would do is they, they went in and they, they literally took the, the machines that they used to thresh wheat and to, to cultivate the land and use that against the people uh, in, in, in Gilead. Uh, they were increasingly violent in their, in their conquest to try and grow. And God says, he, I see this. I see the sin that you're involved in. And so He places a judgment upon them that they will be destroyed and they'll be taken into captivity. And we see that fulfilled sometime later after Amos. We read about it in 2 Kings 16 when the Assyrians come in and they, they destroy Damascus and they take the, the, the Syrians captive. He goes on in verses 6-8, through 8, <clears throat> speaking of Gaza, "...for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not turn away its punishment." Because they took captivity or captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. So again, we have the same thing that we see with, the, with the, uh, Damascus. We see a sin that God is saying, I have, I have witnessed this, I have seen this long enough. And we see a judgment. The sin of Gaza, of Philistia, was their attempts to enslave and ensnare the people of God as they were coming out of Egypt and to sell them to, their, to, to the Edomites. And the judgment that He calls upon them is judgment that is a total devastation. There will be no taking them into captivity. They will be completely wiped out. And again, this is fulfilled by the Assyrians. So we go on down a little bit further. Verses 9 and 10 says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces." Again, their sin was slave traffic. But specifically mentioned, they were, God was, was remembering their sin because they did not remember the, bud, the brotherhood covenant that they had made. Uh, it, it's speculative exactly what this is talking about, but it seems most likely that this is talking about what we read in 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 12, when the king of Tyre, Hiram, meets with or through, corresponds with, I should say, King Solomon after the death of David. And Solomon takes the rule and he sends a letter to Hiram asking him, I'm going to be building this temple and I, need, I would like some of the lumber, some of the, the, the cedars uh, to, to be able to build this. And Hiram writes back and says how, how thankful he is because he loved David and he knew that Solomon loved David too. And, and he would gladly provide anything that he needed for the temple if only he would help him out by dealing with the famine that they were going through and, and provide wheat for them. And so Solomon does this, and they have this treaty based off a mutual love of David, based off of goodwill towards one another. There's a good relationship between Tyre and between, and between Israel. And yet sometime later, we see Tyre acting out of, out of greed, acting out of their desire that they had to grow completely forgetting this, this relationship that they had and attacking and enslaving and, and selling off uh, inhabitants of Israel to the Edomites. And again, their judgment is destruction. And it's fulfilled when they at first are conquered 
by, by the Assyrians, and then Nebuchadnezzar comes in and does a little bit more to, to damage this, this, uh, uh, the, this nation. And finally, Alexander the Great, Ezekiel even pro, uh, announces a, a judgment and, and a prophecy on this. When Alexander the Great comes and finishes the job tearing down and destroying the city of Tyre. And verses 11 through 12, we now get to Edom, and we're going to have uh, now the next three. They are, they are pagan nations, but they are blood related pagan nations. You have the Edomites, the Ammonites, and the, and the Moabites. And he says there, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His, his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Timon, which shall devour the palaces of Basra. So as he turns his attention to Edom, he calls them a, 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 into, into judgment because of their, their violence and their cruelty towards brethren. And certainly the Israelites and, and the Edomites were not brethren in the sense that we think of the, the, the tr- twelve tribes of Israel. But they were related by blood. They, they come from, uh, both were offspring of Abraham. The Edomites come through the lineage of Esau. And, and even though there was a, a selecting of, uh, of Jacob uh, and, and Esau did not receive his birthright, and there was anger there, Esau wanted to kill his brother, we see Esau eventually forgiving his brother along the way as, as Jacob, now Israel, is returning to the land. But it seems as if his descendants never let that go. They, they had this hatred, this burning uh, bitterness that, that continued through them and would not be turned away. And, uh, and as he says here, the anger tore perpetually. He kept his wrath forever. And so God calls a judgment upon them and the destruction of their capital city, Taman, and Basra, their chief city. And, and again, this is fulfilled around 400 B.C. Verses 13 through 15 turns his attention to Ammon. For three transgressions of the people of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead, that they might enlarge their territory. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour its palaces amid shouting in the day of battle, and the tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity. He and his princes together, says the Lord." The sin they are called up to is again the sins of violence and of, and of bloodshed and murder. They had murdered the pregnant women of Gilead. They had gone in and tried to expand their borders at whatever it cost uh, and whoever was in their way uh, destroying them. And the judgment that's called upon them on this is the destruction again of, of their land and the, was again fulfilled by Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 2, verses 1-3, through three, we find Moab being called out. For three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. But I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kiriath. Moab shall die with tumult. With shouting and trumpet sound, I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all its princes with him, says the Lord. And once again, uh, we see uh, this, this continued look at, at the violence that was in these lands, that they weren't doing things that were righteous. They were walking in wickedness. Uh, Moab burned the, the, the king's bones. They, literally, the, the hatred that was here for these people, they, they dug up the king and, and, and burned his bones to ashes, some translations say. And so again, their, destruction, their judgment was destruction. And this was again fulfilled by the Babylons. And now we get to Judah. And I find it interesting. This is one of the things that I love about the prophets. Um, 
How many great history books do we have of American history that talk about just how terrible are, we have been? How many times in school do you find a history book that says, now, now we're going to get into that part of American history that's just deplorable, where we did terrible things? You don't find that very often. We might talk about some of the things that have happened that weren't good, but we're not going to talk about them in great detail. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them. Yet the Jews who, who, who were responsible for preserving so much of this, this Scripture, they took these prophets who were saying, look at the terrible things you were doing and realized this is God's message to us. And even though it doesn't paint us in a very good picture, as we're about to see about Judah, which is where, where Amos is from, he's wagged his finger at everybody else, but he's about to, to shake his finger at what's going on in his, own, in his own home. They read these things and recognize this is something that is important for us to, to preserve. He says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have despised the law of the Lord, have not kept the commandments, their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Their sin is unlike the sins of the pagan nations around them. He calls them out for their apostasy from the law from turning away from God's Word and turning their, their hearts and minds to the world. And their judgment was being destroyed. Specifically, he focuses his judgment on Jerusalem. And that is first carried out by Nebuchadnezzar in around 580 B.C., but we see that eventually fully carried out by Rome in 70 A.D. when they, when they wiped Jerusalem and, and all of, of, of what is left there off the map. And they destroy it. And then he turns to Israel. And the remainder of the chapter, almost as much has been said for everyone else as that he's going to say about Israel. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go in to the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the heights of the cedar, and he was as strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets, and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink, and commanded the prophets, saying, Do not prophesy. Behold, I am weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. Sin. Sin is listed over and over again throughout Israel's, Israel's judgment. Their social injustice, calling, uh, bringing people into, slave, into slavery, the righteous for silver. And the, the idea is, is that, that for, for very little, 
For very little, for someone good, they would, they would sell them into slavery. They, you owe a debt of, of a small amount. You're gone. If you're poor and there's, there's no chance, even for a pair of sandals, for just something to strap to your feet, I will sell you into slavery. They were filled with immorality, idolatry, rebellion against God. And a rebellion against the God who had cast out the Amorites, who had, who had delivered them from the wilderness and from Egypt, and the God who had provided for them in so many ways, even given them prophets and Nazarites. Nazarites like, like what we read about with Samson. And yet they corrupted them. They took the good things that God had given them and they made them wicked, just as wicked as they were. And the effect that this had on God was that He was burdened. He was weighed down. He was weary of their evil ways. And so judgment was coming. Their inability to flee that destruction when it came was the judgment that they would receive. And this was fulfilled by the Assyrians. In 2 Kings 17, 5-23 talks about the, the siege that was placed upon them. A, a lengthy siege, but none of them were able to escape. And, and ultimately, the Assyrians came in and, and destroyed and killed many and the rest were taken into captivity. It is apparent that the focus in this section certainly is primarily the northern kingdom of Israel. That's where more time is spent than anything else on Israel. But Judah did not escape condemnation. The nation surrounding Israel did not escape the condemnation. So what can we learn? What can we learn then? Why was this kept? What is this to provide us today? Well, I think the first thing that comes to my mind when, when I read all of this is the fact that God is not just the God of covenant people. God was just not the God of the Israelites or the kingdom of Judah. God was the God who holds all the nations of men accountable. He was concerned with more than just this covenant race that He had brought out of, out of Egypt. And we see the same things with Obadiah and with Jonah. He was sending, sending people to the nations around telling them, repent. I see what you're doing. And I don't like it. One commentator said the whole message centers in the common prophetic conviction that God is the sole and righteous governor of the world, judging the people righteously, and when they rebel, dashing them to pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, this is the same authority that Christ is given today. This hasn't changed from Old Testament to New Testament. We're serving the same God today as they served then. And in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven, in heaven and on earth. And when we look over to Revelation chapter 1, we see that He is still the God of all men. It says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins with His blood. Jesus is not just, not just Lord of, of the Christians. He, God is not just the God of the Christians. He is the God of all creation. He is the governor of the world, as the commentator said. And He will hold all men accountable. But just because we are the covenant people, just like Israel and Judah had a covenant with God, it doesn't mean that our judgments will be any less severe if we don't follow after the Lord. Another thing that we see from all of this 
is that apostasy and cruelty are treated very, very similarly. And we read some of the things that were going on in these, in these uh, other kingdoms. When we read of, <clears throat> excuse me, we read about the, the, the kingdoms like, like Damascus, uh, the, the kingdom of Syria, that was literally running people through, through iron implementations. They were running someone through what we might, might describe today as a, you know, some sort of harvester for, for our farms. They, they were constantly at battle, murdering and killing. And, and we're not really talking about... The, the, you know something where, where they're protecting their lives. We're talking about people who were not content with what they had, trying to pick up land and trying to grow and trying to build the same things that we see going on during the time of Babel. When the, when the population of the world came together and said, let us make a name for ourselves, that, that, that mindset has not disappeared yet. And we still have people going, let us make a name for ourselves no matter what it costs. The Ammonites ripping open the pregnant women. We read these things and we think, that's really, really bad. And it is really, really bad. But to God, Judah is no different. Those who have not kept My commandments. Those who have turned away from the law of the Lord. We don't read about them murdering pregnant women. We don't read about them running people over with their chariots. But yet to God, leaving his law, apostatizing. It is just as, just as bad, just as wicked as what these heathen nations were doing in their cruelty. And their judgments were basically the same. They were taken into captivity. Their, their, their land was destroyed. They were cast out as he, was, as he promised them would happen as we read this morning. And then finally, we see that the standards to which these nations were held accountable to. You see, the heathens were judged by their violation of these principles of righteousness. But the people of God were judged by their faithfulness to the Word that had been revealed to Him. We see something very similar to this over in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, Paul, speaking of the, the Gentile nations, he says in verses 12-15, through 15, "...as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law." And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having a law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. What Paul seems to be speaking about, and what God is making very clear here, is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you are, are within a covenant relationship with Him or not. He sees the things that you are doing. He sees the actions and the hearts and the intents of the world around us. And there is judgment. There is judgment that is coming for those who refuse to serve Him. Judgment for those who refuse to walk in His way. And that, that message of judgment is going to intensify as Amos continues this message. We won't, we won't get into to the rest of it this afternoon, but as we go through it, 
he's going to once again over and over again hammer onto the nation of Israel that the way that they have they have concentrated and, and seemingly focused all their attention on trying to live unpleasing to God, the level in which they have done that God is going to respond exceedingly greater with punishment and with judgment. And I believe there are many more lessons for us to learn in the book of Amos. And I believe primarily, number one, is the, the greatest message of all is that no matter how far they went from Him, and no matter how bad things got in Israel and how terrible the judgment that fell upon them was, God was not going to leave them abandoned. Amos ends his book, and we will hopefully look at this again at a future time, but he ends this with the promise that the tabernacle of David will be restored. The damage that had been done to it will be rebuilt. The relationship of where God survive, or God lives amongst His people is about to be severed. But it won't be severed forever. There will come a time when God will be amongst His people and His people amongst their God. And while we have that now to an extent, there's so many of these sort ofs but not quite that we find in the Bible. Yes, but not fully. We have that to an extent now with Christ returning to earth, or with Christ coming to earth and, and giving his life for our sins, establishing the church, establishing this, this temple of God that has the presence of God amongst his people. But we look forward to that day when, when it is complete. We look forward to that day when, when the tabernacle of David the resting place of God and His people are finally merged for eternity in heaven. Are you ready for that day? It is a gentle voice that calls you to be prepared, to come, to <clears throat> be invited to the wedding feast of, of the, the, the bride and the lamb. But the other side of that gentle voice is a terrible lion that is prepared to hand out judgment for all those who will not repent, who will, all those who will not return to the Lord. It is our desire to be ready and for each and every one of us to be ready to meet our God. If there's something we can do this afternoon to help you, whether it be coming to Him for the first time, coming to Him in obedience to, be, to, to, to repent of the sinful life, the, the things that you have done that, that are against His law and against His will, to be baptized, to be forgiven of your sins, and to confess your belief in Him and walk steadfastly in that. Or whether having done that already, you know that, that even though you have seen great prosperity in the Lord, you have, allowed, you have allowed Satan to do the same thing that he did for that covenant people of Israel and to turn their hearts slowly slowly but surely away from the Lord. If there's something that you need to repent of, something that you would like for the prayers of the, the saints here, why don't you let it be known as we stand and as we sing.